0: Okay, Ephesians, Bibles, electronic devices, click, Ephesians 1, let's do it. <clears throat> uh, we're going to look at 1 through 14. Uh, oh, let's just go ahead and do this. This is really kind of crazy, but one, uh, you look at 3 through 14, if you have your Bibles out really quick, let's just take a little quick textual tour, shall we? Uh, this is one sentence, so this is what one uh, scholar has called the most monstrous, sentence in Greek literature history. It is one long sentence. That means there's only one main verb. That means everything's participles and infinitives and prepositions. And the one main verb is not actually in the original text. It's supplied. You ready for it? Look at verse 3. Be. (laughs) It's a be verb. Oh my word. So in all this action and all this glory and all this wonder, The supplied, the implied, not even supplied. The implied verb, the main action verb is be. Blessed be. There it is. There you got it. So scholars say, one, my New Testament professor says there are 43 ways to actually structure this text. 43 ways. So the way that we're going to approach it is we're going to do the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father's verses uh, 3 through 6. Jesus is 7 through 12, and then the Holy Spirit, 13 through 14. So that's how it's going to be organized for us, for our time together, okay? Just wanted to give you a quick tour through the text. Now, Tony Ferguson is a childhood friend of mine. You all know him, right? No, you do not. Our families, Tony, his family, another family named Barry, and the Hattons, we all moved into Simsbury, Connecticut, a preppy, tight-knit community that was founded in 1670, we all moved in at the same time. That's unheard of in New England. Everybody's been there since the 1600s. People don't move into those places. The actual town is landlocked by rivers that flow all around it, outside of Hartford, and a mountain that even buffers it. So this is not your moving in society. This is not like Waco is now, right? Everybody's got an Airbnb here now, right? Peter? Peter's trying but he can't his neighbors won't let him. That, it's not like that right here. Up there it is it's a preppy tight-knit town. so for three 15-year- old boys to move in going into their freshman year in high school is unheard of, right? Uh, Tony comes from uh, Tucson, Arizona. His family moves in Barry from Aurora, Ohio, outside of Cleveland. A, a, a small bedroom community outside of Cleveland. We come from Houston, Texas. We all came in, so it was easy for us to find each other. It was easy for us to become immediate friends. It was easy for us to try to figure out how to navigate a world that was completely foreign to us called the New England culture. But we did. Uh, Tony then, after we graduate from high school, he goes off to Duke and becomes a very successful entrepreneur. but in the early days of his entrepreneurial enterprise, everything depended upon him getting himself before very important people. So you had to have complete, you had to have thick skin. You had to be absolutely doggedly pit bull persistent to do this. You had to basically what I told him, Tony, you just need to be yourself because you're so annoying. So one day, he's being his annoying self. He's being his annoying self to a secretary that is getting in the way of him seeing a very important person. She's not happy. He's insisting that he sees this very important person. She's the gatekeeper trying to keep him from seeing this very important person. So what he says to her, because she's not happy, he says to her, that's fine, I'll wait. I'll wait for him. Oh, no, she's not happy at all. So this little cat and mouse game goes on for about an hour, and finally she is completely exasperated, and she, she looks up from her desk, and she sees him sitting over there just completely irritated, and goes, who are you? <laughs> I just love this. Tony gets up out of his chair, walks up to her desk, straightens himself up, looks her right in the eye and says, I'm classic. I'm like, you didn't do that. He goes, oh, no, I did. I said, I know you did. It's just the best. (laughs) So who, who are you? Who are you? I am fill in the blank. Who are you? I am I don't know. Welcome to Ephesians chapter 1. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through
1: 14. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
0: be to Please be seated. So Lord, we thank you for the wonder of this passage. We thank you for the textural terrain of this passage. We thank you for its contours, its, its heights, its depths, all its twists and its turns, its dead ends, and its, whoa, we're lost. Lord, this is a magnificent passage. And so we ask your help, we ask for clarity to the mind, Holy Spirit, a life giver, give life to us, shine on the page, speak us back to life, give us Jesus, it's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, so who, who are you? The Washington Post ran this article this past week, I was dumbfounded when I saw it. Dating apps need women, it says. Dating apps need women. Uh, advertisers need diversity. AI, artificial intelligence, uh, companies offer a solution. Here's the solution. So dating apps need women. Uh, advertisers need diversity. So AI companies have come to offer this solution to all of us. Fake people. Computer generated people. They offer people that do not exist. People that are artificial. People that are imitation people. These aren't real people. Also, the article talked about what's a phenomenon that's exploding right now because it's already happening somewhere, so they're trying it now with dating apps and they're trying it with artificial intelligence. Computer porn, generated fake people, generated fake porn is on the rise. Crazy land, right? The demand for fake people is on the rise. I'm gonna tell my wife right now and I'm gonna tell my kids right now, I'm gonna tell you right now. The moment I apologize to Alexa for talking harshly to her is the moment that thing is out of our house. Oh, I'm sorry, Alexa, was I too rough? That thing's gone, gone. Who are you, right, in a culture that demands fake people? Selena Gomez, she's a former teen Disney star, former girlfriend of Justin Bieber. She's now a 27-year-old musical superstar, global phenom, uh, she has 163 million Instagram followers, and she has had very publicized struggles these recent past years. Um, her struggles, unlike ours, though, they inspire zillions and zillions of tabloid covers. Ours do not. You have to feel for that. Feel for them for that. I mean, good night. What does she struggle with? She struggles with anxiety, and she struggles with depression. Why? Quote, I have low self-esteem, and that's something I work on continuously, but I feel so empowered because I've gained so much knowledge about what's going on in my mental state and my mental health. Selena Gomez struggles with who she is. Who are you? I am fill in the blank. Some of us can't fill in the blank. We don't know who we are. And then on top of it, we don't even know who to ask. So, do I ask my parents who I am? Do I ask my teachers? Do I ask my coaches? Uh, do I ask my friends? Okay, well, maybe I need to ask science. Do I ask science? Science, science. Will you tell me I am science? Tell me who I am. Do I ask a priest? Do I ask politicians? Do I ask the government? Do I ask successful people, famous people, wealthy people? Do I ask people who have a happy life, who have the good life? Do I ask married people, people that have children, grandparents? children, people that have grandchildren, I'll ask them, people that live long, who am I? I don't know. Who do I ask? Who am I? I am fill in the blank. Some of us don't like what's been filled into the blank. And when you don't like what's filled in the blank, you turn on yourself. And you turn on yourself this way, you start self loathing yourself, you start self hating, you start self, you have this voice in this conversation that's constantly self critical. You're in this hyper state of self consciousness. Child psychologist Dorothy Martin defines depression as a loss of stature in your own eyes. Sigmund Freud theorized that depression is this is the best. Definition of depression I've ever heard. He theorizes depression is anger turned inward. When you don't like what you fill in the blank with, your anger goes at yourself. Who are you? I am fill in the blank. Some of us move from answer to answer. I am my performance. I'm my gifts, I'm my talents, my abilities. I am my achievements and my attainments. I am my sexuality. That's a big one today. I am, who am I? I'm my sexuality. I'm my sexual orientation. That's who I most fundamentally am. I am my failure. I'm my sin. I'm my brokenness, I'm my shame, I'm, I am the abuse that's been done to me. I am, for many of us, it's I am a good Christian. I am a good mother. I'm a good husband. I am um, a good professor. I am I'm a good professional. I am... I am what people think of me. Children growing up are, I am what my parents think of me. I am what boys think of me. And this one is overlooked. We joke about it. There's all kinds of memes about it. We all kind of nod to it. But I don't really think we know how true it is. I am who likes me, follows me, stalks me, voyeurs me, is attracted to me, tags me on social media. Moving from answer to answer has one thing in common. Do you know what the one thing in common is? When we, I am fill in the blank, and we go from answer to answer, it has all of these things have one thing in common. Who are you? Here's what we have in common. I am... Who I say I am. Who I say I am. I want you to look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let's zero in on that, shall we? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed us is a completed action. This means the doing is done. This means the action is completed. This means the action is over. The action is finished. The action is achieved. The action is attained. The doing has been worked. Oh, this is breathtaking because this means, in other words, verse 3 is telling us that God has done for you every spiritual action in Christ. It means that God has accomplished for you, finished for you, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you say every, I say every. You say every, the text says every. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing. Are you saying faith? Yeah, that's a spiritual blessing. Are you saying like forgiveness? Yep, that's a spiritual blessing. Are you saying joy? Yep, that's a spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing has already been done for you, already accomplished for you, already achieved for you, already worked for you. Are you saying life change Already. Is that a spiritual? Is that an every? That's an every. Are you saying like becoming a new person? Uh, That's every. Are you saying like he loves me? Every. Are you saying being accepted? Every. Are you saying like learning to actually have different patterns in my life? Every. 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 Spiritual blessing. This means whoever we are, whoever we are, we haven't even answered that question yet, but whoever we are, this means whoever we are, it's settled It's over, it's done, it's finished, it's secured. Whoever you are, whoever we are, whoever I am, it's done, it's accomplished. Who are you? Ephesians one wants you to feel deep in your bones. It wants you to have, be able to verbalize with clarity to your minds. Who are you? Ephesians one is after this one thing. Ephesians one wants you to be able to say, Deep in your bones. Feel it with life-giving newness. And to be able to go out these doors, to be able to go to your work, to be able to go to the dark places, to be able to wrestle with yourself, to be able to handle your relationships, to be able to tackle your careers, to be able to navigate the highs and lows of what people do to you, what circumstances do to you, to live life in this, in this world. Ephesians 1 wants you to be able to say when you walk out of this room, when you get done reading this text, who are you? Ephesians 1, I am who you say I am. Not who I say I am, who you say I am. But you say, Jeff, that's great. I might believe it. I mean, it's kind of nice to hear, but, but I feel so forsaken. I feel forsaken by God. I feel forsaken by others. I feel forsaken by those who are supposed to love me. I feel forsaken by friends. I feel forsaken by myself. I feel forsaken by circumstances. I feel forsaken by life. I am, Jeff, forsaken. I want you to follow verse 3 into verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but I feel forsaken. Yep. Verse 4, even as, even as, grammar, even as, what? Even as, what? Even as he chose us. In him before the foundation of the world. And to continue these electrifying words, look at verse 5. Even as, because the thought's still continuing, the grammar still continues, it still links. Even as he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters. Now I know we all think these are Presbyterian cuss words, but actually these are biblical words. These are Paul's words. These are breathtaking words. These are not scary words. These are not controversial words. These are beautiful words. Please hear me. Right now, what God is saying to you through these words of chosen and predestination, He's saying you. Who are you? Who are you? I am. He's saying you're chosen, not forsaken. You're chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Chosen in verse four, predestined in verse five means God chose you for himself. He chose you for himself. He chose you for himself. He didn't choose you to be better and do better. He didn't choose you to be a good mother and a good professor and a good professional. He didn't choose you to be important. He didn't choose you to be influential. He didn't choose you to be liked. He chose you for himself for Himself. Chosen and predestined are profoundly personal. They're intensely relational. He chose you to be. Look at verse 4. He chose you to be. He chose us. If you get to the end of verse 4, look what it says, to be before Him in love. Now, you can either take that love and go with the participle chose, or you can go with the participle in verse 5, which is predestined. But either one are the same thing, so it doesn't matter. I choose to go with the first participle because only prepositional phrases like that happen after participles in this whole phrase. So the ESV takes it with predestined. I say they're wrong. The smart people like me go with verse 4. Look what he's saying. He chose us to be before him in love. Do you see what that means? This is unbelievable. So he chose you. He didn't forsake you, but he chose you to this end. That you stand right now before him, surrounded, enveloped, and swallowed by his love. In other words, the love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have in this intra-Trinitarian dynamic that we have known nothing about goes public and that He makes you and chooses you to be involved in it. So when you leave here, you're in His love. Well, I don't feel it, but it doesn't matter. Who said your feelings are God? When you leave here, when you don't feel it, you're enveloped and swallowed and surrounded in his love. When you go to your relationships and you go to your family and you enter difficulties and you get up in the morning and you go to sleep, you're enveloped and surrounded before him in love. He chose you for that. And then you go to predestined. Look at verse 5. He chose you. He predestines you. These are the same words just used with a slightly different cut in the diamond. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. Intensely personal. He chose you, He predestined you to actually be His child, to actually be in a familial relationship with, with this God. God chose you for Himself. This is intensely personal this is an intense love. It's so intense that he chose you for it. You remember the experience, don't you? I mean, I don't know. Do kids still play outside today? Every ball field, every pickup game, every uh, playground at school, you know what happens. Something's going to be played and they're gonna, now the teams are going to be divided up and you still might be scarred to it from this day where, you know, I picked Susie, says the best person at this game because everyone knows that the top talent of whatever game you're about to play is captain number one, and captain number one always gets to pick first. And then you hear, I pick Sam because everyone knows that the second best person at whatever you're doing is always captain number two, and captain number two always picks second. But you're not Susie and you're not Sam. And then you're not Mary and you're not Mark. And then you're not Betsy and you're not Bartholomew. And then you're not Wyona, and you're not Washington. You are forsaken. I want you to look at verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world means he chose you first. The God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the most supreme being. I mean, what do you say about him? I mean, Jonathan Edwards didn't know what to say. I mean, we can use Scripture, which we can. You know what he used to call God? The Great being. The great being chose you first for himself. You're chosen, not forsaken. What this means in the words of Mike Horton, who is probably the top theologian in the world today, my opinion, before the foundation of the world means, this is what he says it means, the triune God was plotting your redemption in view of the fall. Now, there is so much here that we could say the controversy, but I really don't see much of the controversy. I, I really don't, honestly. I mean, I wrestled with this. I've struggled with this just like everybody else. And now I'm, when I look at it, I go, why did I struggle with that? Because everything that's going on here, when Paul uses these words... He's not struggling. When he's using these words, it's not controversial. When he's using these words, he creates the most monstrosity of a Greek sentence in all of human history because he is swept up and he's electrified by it. He's worshiping. It's such good news. His whole being is electrified. His whole being is reached. So if we understand it, that's what actually happens. If we don't understand it, it's controversial. It's whatever. But God and his eternity... (laughs) Because he's not temporal, time is temporal. Whenever in the intra Trinitarian works of God, which we don't know anything about, in fact, we're actually told, don't be trying to figure out those things, stupid. You deal with the external works of God. What are the external works of God? Creation, redemption, consummation. There you go. All that theology, there you go, right there. Well, in the intra Trinitarian works of God, When God started thinking and in his heart and in his mind, he wanted and he decreed and all those words that you see in here, will, purpose, uh, set forth, uh, plan, all of those words are in this intra-Trinitarian dynamic. They're not out here. They're not in creation. They're embodied in creation. They're executed in creation. They're executed in redemption. They're executed in in consummation. But they're in here. We don't know much about them. In here, whenever... Whenever he was considering creation and whenever he foresaw the fall, whenever he foresaw Adam abusing his freedom and handing over the keys of the kingdom to the dark powers, the sin, the death, the evil one, and all his jackals, whenever God foresaw that, and then he foresaw you in that, enslaved worse than an egyptian did an israelite worse than pharaoh did an israelite in egypt enslaved in bound locked blind oppressed abused swallowed up by the dark powers whenever he foresaw that he chose you before the foundations of the Wow. You are chosen, not forsaken. He didn't abandon you to the dark powers. He will not abandon you now to the dark powers. I am who you say I am. Chosen, not forsaken. But those of us that feel forsaken are like, yeah, yeah, but Jeff, the reason I feel forsaken is because I feel so broken. Isn't that interesting how those two always go together? I mean, we tend to think, ah, oh, I just feel so forsaken, but we really need to push a little bit more. It's almost like this, and and Brent knows this because I use this all the time. It's like weeds. You're you're. Your painful emotions are like weeds in your mind and in your heart and in your life. And what we need to do is we need to not go, oh, that's a nice weed, and walk by it and let it just sting us and prick us and be uncomfortable for the rest of our life. We need to go up to it, grab it, and pull it up and see what its roots are. Pull it up by the root, because remember, if you don't pull up weeds by the root, what happens? You'll be pulling it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And when you feel forsaken, you grab it by the root, you pull it up. The root is always because I feel so broken. They go together. Always. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Got that, got that. But Jeff, I feel so forsaken. Yep, we, we just saw that. You feel it, but He chose you First, before the foundation of the world. I know, I know, but I feel so broken. Okay, verse 4 continues. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Oh, my. That we should be holy, you know what holy means? That we should be perfect, that we should be pure, that we should be righteous, that we should be whole, that we should be complete, that we should be healed. In other words, you're not broken, you're finally, fully yourself. That we should be blameless, you know what this means? This means no defect, no flaw, no imperfection, no blemish, no shame. There's there's no missing pieces in you. In other words, you're not broken. In other words, you're finally and fully yourself. You're finally enough. You're enough. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love is, this is so important, it's present tense. This is not future tense. Most folks read this and go, yeah, yeah, well, you know, one day. One day I'll be finally before him and I'll be finally holy and finally blameless. And the tense here kills us because the tense says, right now. Right now. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Right now amidst your feelings. And not just your feelings. Let's be honest. It's not just feelings of being unholy. You are unholy. It's not just feelings of blame. We are blameful. We are deeply fought, flawed. We are immensely racked on the inside, our relationships get wrecked because we're a wreck. I mean and amidst all of that, this text is saying to you and me, what God is saying to you and me right now, you are holy and blameless in Him. In Him. In Him. In Him, in verse 4, look at it. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. This means Jesus gives you in His historical life that He lived on your behalf and in His powerful resurrection that He did on our behalf and then in His incredible ascension where He sat at the right hand of the throne of God and we're going to see His breathtaking realities of what that means at the end of chapter 1. But when He did that, He gives you his holiness, his very own holiness, his very own perfection, his very own righteousness, his very own loving God perfectly all the days of his life in his thoughts and his feelings and his desires and his trusts and his loves, in his worship, in his relationships, and his actions, in how he did carpentry, how he handled creation, how he handled everybody. He loved God perfectly. He loved people perfectly. He was without blame. No flaw, no imperfection, no failure, no disobedience. No, unlike the original Adam, woefully abuses his freedom and lets the dark powers into the world. In fact, when he goes out into the wilderness, he confronts the dark powers and crushes their head. In him also means that Jesus, by his death, he becomes your unholiness. And he becomes your blame. And he becomes your condemnation and your sin and your forsakenness. So you say, I'm unholy. Others say, you are to blame. God says, you're holy and blameless. In Him. You're not broken. You're finally, fully yourself. Being in Him, and it's going to be unpacked. This is incredible. This, though, we're going to go in a Trinitarian direction. You need to see that this passage is Christ centered. In Him is everywhere. When it talks about the Father's work, it's always in Him. When it talks about the Holy Spirit, it's always in Him. Even the Father and the Son, I mean the Father and the Spirit are Christ-centered. It's unbelievable. Why? Because He's the final full Adam. He's you and me for us. So being in Him means whatever happened to Jesus. So whatever happens to Him when He lives this life and He dies this death and whatever He does, whatever happens to Him when He's justified and He's seated and He's resurrected and He's enthroned, whatever happens to Him, guess what? Happens to you. Because you're in Him. Because you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Him, in the heavenlies. So, we're just getting started, aren't we? Just getting started. Who are you? And here's our first answer, and this is the first one. It's just verses 4 through 6. Who are you? I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am.